Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Weekdays at 5.30. We are 6.40 Toronto. And it's lovely to be here the day before Canada Day, but let's take that word lovely and move that outside and talk about what we see in the sky right now, which is a lot of haze, and what we breathe, which right now, as I'm waking you up or as if you've been awake for a while, we have once again the worst air quality in the world. Not much we can do about it at this point, but how do we react? Yeah, the website iqair.com has us very poorly ranked. We sit at a 160, which is worse than Dubai in the UAE, in the United Arab Emirates, and worse than five other, five North American cities, Detroit, Washington, New York, Montreal, Chicago, that are all um, in bad shape. Chicago, not so bad. Like we are, we're twice as bad as Chicago on this AQI scale, on the air quality index. So how did it get to this? Is a great question because I think we thought Wednesday lousy, Thursday back to normal, Friday even more back to normal. This has been very hard to predict. What it'll be, what will it be by two o'clock, three o'clock today? I have no idea. And it, I I called out to some extent, and not just to fill time. I mean it. Um, yesterday there was two days ago there was no response from the city whatsoever. Um, And I just think it was totally inadequate. I know there's a deputy mayor in transition who's just sort of been a placeholder in Jennifer McKelvey. Didn't see her, didn't know anything about her on Wednesday. We have a chief medical officer of health, Dr. Eileen Davila, whose job it is to let you know and everybody in Toronto know about health issues. I feel that, uh, you know, air quality being terrible, not just kind of not great. And, and so for people with heart conditions, lung conditions, older people, kids with asthma, um, the goal is get in front of a camera and a microphone and say something. And the city just did not respond. We'll see if they do today. I know there's talk about a plan um, in the future from Olivia Chow, the mayor-elect, to do that. But what about today? And it's the dumbest thing imaginable to recommend, well, everybody just stay inside as much as you can. Well, no, because that's that creates panic and alarm where it's unnecessarily needed. And I'd make the case it's the last thing we want. And we've seen what happens when we panic and alarm people. We affect them psychologically like that. But if you're going to play mental health is really important. And I'll tell you that it is. And we have more and better conversations about it than ever before. Don't just tell people stay inside no matter what as much as you can because the air is bad. Who's it bad for? Who is it worse for? I saw all these officials do that from other cities, and I saw none of that from Toronto. But you heard me say that yesterday. You heard me say that yesterday morning. Now I think it's time to tackle some of the myths and the facts about this. Like we didn't know on Wednesday, are we going to do this one or two more times? Or are we going to do this 11 more times? And um, is this this perfect confluence of events that just leaves us sitting here Wondering what we're going to do and what we're going to say about it. I was on the radio a lot in um, Detroit, Michigan, post-Hurricane Katrina. That happened in August of 2005. 1,400 people died in Hurricane Katrina. But there's been nothing like it since, not even close in North America. So that felt like a perfect confluence of events. Large and extremely powerful hurricane. City that's not ready for it. Response was really weak. Um, it, it hit a geographic area that is always going to deal with storms and hurricanes and whatnot. 
Um, but messaging was terrible. Response was terrible. Um, there were so many problems with, uh, with, with damage. And again, so much of life is not whether it's going to happen to you. It's how are you going to react when it does? And Hurricane Katrina was a really poor example. Has there been, I know Houston got hit hard by a hurricane several years ago. Had to move a bunch of baseball games in the middle of summer, same time of year. Florida gets flattened sometimes. Fort Myers had that happen to it. But I, if you think this is every summer in Toronto the rest of your life, I'm here to tell you it's not. I'm here to tell you that won't be the case. And I often see, well, it's just a simple sentence. Wildfires are getting worse, and that's proof of climate change. And by the way, of course there's climate change. I see all these people documenting, well, um, you know, do you believe in climate change? Well, who doesn't? But it's a really loaded question. It's an incredibly complicated question that, that there's no one side to it or one. Like, it's a loaded question. How would I answer it? Do you believe in climate change? Are we humans having a huge impact on the climate? Sure, we are. Absolutely, we are. But can I take that and swing my leg over the over the barrier and say it, it, we're in a climate crisis right now? No, not necessarily. Um, CO2 emissions contribute to our warming, but right now that warming is manageable and it's really manageable in a city like Toronto. So if we look around and and say, come on, what are you talking about? Look at the air now. I'm going to tell you that that's a ton of boxes getting checked with a, a great deal of variables happening at the same time. And there used to be a time on Earth when our CO2 levels were much higher than they are today. So, and by the way, uh, fossil fuels, I'd like to use less of them. I think we all should use fewer of them than more of them. Got it. hundred percent. But they also give us energy that protects us against storms and protects us against droughts and protects us against extreme temperatures, which we're going to have some of next week. You do realize we have fewer deaths because of climate, weather, and all related circumstances than we did a hundred years ago because we're more prepared and we're smarter and we've evolved. So it's just such an extremely vague question. And that said, um, I, I think there should be some kind of alert or warning and just more togetherness, not just from the municipal government, but from all levels of government. It's like It feels like our provincial and federal politicians are all on holiday right now and they're nowhere to be found. And they're reacting to a lot of weird stuff and bad news. Bill C-18 is one, and I'm going to get to that in a little bit. You can let us know where the uh, where you are, how the air is. 416-870-6400. 416-870-6400. And I see people weighing in. Toronto should cancel their fireworks. It should certainly be a consideration. It should to have uh, to be setting off uh, bottle rockets at, at Ashbridge's Bay. Um, they were there was a big fuss about making sure that that uh, the fireworks were downtown on Canada Day at Nathan Phillips Square. At first, they said we don't have the budget for it. Then somehow, some way. Um, the city found money to shoot fireworks off tomorrow night. Blue Jays are here all weekend for three games. You'd like to have the roof off. TFC plays tomorrow night. You'd like to see that go ahead. But today, today I feel it. I, I saw it. I felt it. It's different. It's different than it was yesterday, and it's a lot more like it was on Wednesday. Uh, we say Sheba Siddiqui usually was uh, who we talk to right now, and she'll be back on Monday. But Lyle... Robichaux is here right now. I uh, you you didn't tell me that I was saying your name wrong. I'm gonna lay this right at your door. I have a funny story about somebody that I didn't tell when I was interning somewhere 
that was getting my name wrong all week, and then it led to an embarrassing situation. I'm going to tell you that story next hour at this time, but I got your name right today, didn't I? Yes. Yes, you did. Thank baby Jesus that I did that. Now, you had relatives come in yesterday, and you had planned to go somewhere today. Or I hope you're still going. We are. We're still going to Good. Kansas Wonderland. Live your life. Good. Yes. I am bringing my 75-year-old grandmother. We're going to play it by ear with the air quality. Yeah. But she's bound and determined to go. She's never been to Canada's Wonderland, despite my mom, her, and my grandfather, who uh, passed away a few years ago, living in Toronto up until she was 13 years old. She's never been, so she said, I'm not missing out on the chance. I'm still going. That's fantastic. Maybe out in Vaughn, it's a little bit better. But uh, like I said, you, you can't uh, you can't put a stop to everything just because of some uh, some gloomy conditions. Obviously, if you're not feeling good, you have to go back inside, but we're going to play it by ear. Hopefully, I'm really hoping that this means shorter lines, honestly. It's going to mean shorter lines, man. I'm telling you, and, and you're going to have a great time out there today, and uh, and I, I want a full report as to how it was. Are you going right after the show? Like, what time do you think you're getting there? Right after the show. As soon as the oh, show's we have a over. Meeting. We have a Friday meeting for an hour and, uh, what, Dave, 45 minutes or so? We really break down what, what we got right, what not we got gonna wrong. Not going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> not gonna be there well invoice accordingly i mean there's uh, that i i don't want that to affect to affect your uh dramatically high pay for stepping in for sheba this weekend <laughs> what are you looking forward to most of wonderland um i'm me and my fiance actually frequent wonderland quite a bit i'm a big theme park guy uh, i've done disney three times universal twice uh bush gardens a couple times as well uh bush really, gardens is great in tampa it's so much fun it really is. yeah it is it is um what i look forward to the most obviously is 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 the rides i love the yukon striker uh leviathan obviously all the fun stuff we get the meal pass as well i highly recommend it to everybody you get a free meal every 90 minutes saves you a lot of money you can you get it every 80 minutes i don't get it like i know that there is a meal pass yes what's the time distinction i just thought you could eat whatever you wanted wherever you wanted you get this you get this like which uh, maybe you do lyle i don't know you well enough yet to know whether you do that or not. oh yes we take advantage of it okay absolutely. good good solid but you get Love a bracelet it. with a barcode on it and basically every 90 minutes you can scan that at any food place in the park yeah and you can get one free meal anything on the menu it's included. oh but they're gonna know if you do that at three o'clock and then try it again at like 318 yeah exactly <laughs> That's me worth testing out. And then, you know, the argument. So, like, coming out to protest, like, an umpire's call. Be oh. back and forth on that. Oh, we Safe have out. We have hungry, tested. not hungry. So, Bill C-18, what's going to happen here? This has been a bit of a game of chicken, and you can make the case that for, for reasons, for reasons that were important to them at the time, the liberal government kind of picked this battle. So, what do they do now? Stay in the ring or try and negotiate? I don't have a clue where this goes. Michael Geismite, and he's kind enough to join us now on Toronto Today. He's a law professor and, of course, knows this e-commerce law, um, that where this is going to go. Let's get a sense from Michael. Michael, first of all, thanks for getting up early on the West Coast for our audience here in Toronto today. Oh, I'm happy to do it. Thanks for having me. I noticed the minister said he was surprised by the outcome, and I'm like, I wish I was a senior advisor to minister sometimes. I'm like, you know what? Even if you are, don't say that. You had to be ready for the potential that they, that Meta and Google, in this case yesterday, Michael, weren't going to buckle here. Yeah, I was surprised by that comment. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think he was referring to Google having made the statement they did, given that they were having some conversations with the department. But I have to say, both of these companies' positions have been very clear. I mean, certainly Meta from day one made it clear that if they were going to create a system of mandated payments for links, 
they, that the company simply could not go along with that. And Google focused on that plus uncapped liability. You don't know how much you're going to be on the hook for, for indexing or linking to news. And so for the government to say, well, we can't believe they've taken the step or surprised in the case of the minister, doesn't really square with what we've been hearing now for over a year. Bills go back several months, or as you point out, more than 12 months. What would, would have, we, we wind the clocks back a year ago to last summer. Michael, what would your advice have been to the Liberal government about this bill? It would have been to retool it. Not to say that we shouldn't have these companies contributing uh, into the Canadian economy, and in particular into news. Although I think the connection, frankly, between these companies and news is a lot more tenuous than some people suggest. But the problem was, by linking it to links... Uh, which is such an important part of the, the internet and how we access information by placing some real risks, I think, to the independence of the press. The model that they chose was just the wrong one. And it, I think it, it should be concerns not just for those big tech companies, but for Canadians more broadly. And so there were better solutions out there. Yet, you know, the, the government kind of doubled down and then tripled down and then seemed to think that it was just good politics to go to war with the tech companies when I think at the end of the day, really everybody emerges as a loser if this kind of follows through. Michael Geist, our guest on 640 Toronto on Toronto Today. I, and I wish this sort of back and forth, I get it, but, you know, partisan politics, you're going to have both sides not doing practical things, having gotcha moments. I, I understand that the Conservatives are going to criticize the Liberals for not spotting this coming or in essence taking a loss yesterday on this because the, the, the big company Google didn't buckle. At the the same time, I don't think that this makes Pierre Pauly ever some kind of a, you know, a, a, an arm or, a, um, you know, an associate of the big tech companies. But that's I just wish they'd focus on the practical issues. But I get that they're going to get hammered and, and get a lot of slings and arrows for this now. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess I got a couple of views on that. One is it's it's been a difficult issue to engage with, in part because the government turns around anytime someone criticizes them on this bill or on the prior C-11 bill with on Internet streaming and says, oh, you're just a shill for big tech. And, mm-hmm. and I think Canadians have, have legitimate concerns about the approaches that the government took, and it has nothing to do with being supportive of big tech. In fact, it seems to me that we ought to be regulating them and probably should have started with privacy protection and the way they use our data, and yet the government has slow-walked that legislation all along. I have to tell you, though, when you look at what took place in the House, sure, the Conservatives engaged in some of that, in, in some of that criticism. But I have to say, there, there were no really consistently strong voices saying, we've got a concern here. And I think that highlights the power media it still does have over politicians who want favorable, co- want favorable coverage, of course. And so there was a bit of reluctance almost from day one to really get up strongly and say, we want to provide support, but this model, mandated payments for links, when they're not even using the content. Facebook doesn't post yeah. full copies of, of articles. They just link back to the original source. The idea that they ought to be compensating for that, for links usually published, posted by publishers, never made any sense. I know the U.S. Ambassador to Canada, David Cohen, was on television yesterday, and he made the point, look, this this was no accident. The United States didn't take a position on C-18. They kind of don't even want this battle themselves, do they, with with Meta, with Google? They're, I mean, I mean they're, they're, their newspaper industry, not so dissimilar to ours. Their, their radio industry, not that dissimilar to ours. They had just had a big fight to make sure they kept AM radio in cars. But they're, they're staying out of this fight. And this is a fight that the liberal government seemed to go after more aggressively. I think it did. You know, I, I think they saw this as Canada being able to hold itself up as a model 
for others. You know, Australia was, was clearly the first, and Canada wanted to show that they could, in their minds, the government's minds, do this better, and even in the face of the pressure, uh, continue ahead with it. But I think that in many ways, the, the more the world focuses on Canada and this piece of legislation, the more dug in the tech companies are going to be. You know, if you're if you're meta and you're facing the possibility of other countries following suit with potential billions in liability for links, you're not going to say, OK, fine, I'm going to I'm going to cave in Canada because that sends a message to the rest of the world that. In fact, it's not a strong principled approach on this issue. And so I think, and if anything, the attention this has gotten makes it more likely that these companies are going to say, you know, you need to either this legislation doesn't take effect or make significant changes to address the linking issue, the unlimited liability issue, um, or we're going to stand firm. Mm-hmm. It's second most read story on uh, on BBC's website, Michael. Like that tells you, you just nailed it. Across the Atlantic, uh, they are they are looking at this, going, "Is this any kind of harbinger for us?" Last thing I got for you is is wondering whether this government doesn't tend to walk stuff back. A lot of provincial governments say, "Oh, you don't like that policy? I'll change it within a couple of weeks." This liberal government hasn't done that much in the last eight years. Can they get to the table? Can they be more conciliatory? What do you think the end result is? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, the, I think the government left itself with very little wiggle room. You know, in Australia, where it's true, some of this did play out. The government had a bit more scope to make changes. There's less here. And I think in this instance, I think Meta, I think Meta, frankly, would like to exit the news market. And so I don't think there's much the government could do to get them back. Mm-hmm. In the case of Google, it's pretty clear they, they want to find a way to have a deal. So I guess the question will be whether or not the government left itself with any space to do it. When they literally just a week and a half ago passed an amendment that said this bill has to take effect within six months. So they almost put themselves on the clock with that late amendment. Michael, guys, smart stuff on this. Thanks so much for doing this. Happy Canada Day weekend. I appreciate you making the time, especially so early where you are. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Um, All right. So, so much more to come on this, I'm sure, throughout the day. And we'll see. Where this goes, this again, it's not just a story um, that affects, I know we get in this Toronto lens a little bit, and it's a big media market. Of course it is. I've worked in, I've done most of my stuff in London, England, Detroit, Michigan, Toronto. Like, they're all big media markets. But when I go home to London, Ontario, or when I even stop in Kitchener, I see the size of the newspaper. It's not even just the cost sometimes. It's the size of the paper that concerns me. There's less news in there. We were talking about that with magazines earlier in the week on the show. So, is it Things only go in one direction. So even if they're getting smaller, we're talking already this week about giants, the Toronto Star and the Toronto Sun and and the National Post all having the same owner, not out of a a chance to make even more money, but out of necessity to keep the industry going, to keep jobs alive. So there isn't a trickle down effect to their papers as well. It's hugely concerning. And the liberals picked a fight here. I don't I don't know how you could make the case. I understand the intentions. And as guys just said, there's room to to be proactive and and have some conversations about it. But there isn't room to t- walk into Google and Meta and go, hey, you're doing what we want, and that's that. Or you guys can skedaddle, if you will, on out of here. David Zipper is uh, just brilliant when it comes to travel and transit. I can't remember when I came across him. It might have been a couple of years ago on, uh, on the Twitter thing. And uh, he's got thoughts on Toronto, too. He's in D.C. right now, but he's advised several major cities in terms of what their transit and what their mobility should look like. But, um, you know, even on things like electric cars, electric uh, scooters, electric bikes, 
Um, you know, he's just not all in. He's he's not a um, how would I, he's not a climate warrior is the best way I can put it. But he recognizes some realities, and he joins us now on Toronto Today. I'd ask if you think we're ever going to get back to the point in major cities where numbers return. Will we do transit just differently than we did in 2019 uh, post-pandemic, or will we do it like we did it in 2019? Oh, I absolutely think that the transit in North American cities can re- end up with as many riders, if not more, than it had before the pandemic. And I'm not just pulling that out of thin air. You look across the Atlantic to Europe, where you see a number of cities, such as Paris and Brussels, that have pretty much regained total ridership uh, of what they had before the pandemic. Now, that's not that everything is the same as what it was in 2019, but they've in, they have invested in adjusting their service so that because, as you noted, so many people are working from home, maybe we don't need as many trains and buses that are operating between 8 and 9 a.m. or 5 and 6 p.m. during those rush hours. Maybe we should reallocate some of that service away from the commute times that are peak and towards more neighborhood uh, routes that are during the day. Uh, That requires some creativity. It requires potentially some more money. But I absolutely do think that transit can and should remain an absolute backbone of urban mobility systems in North American cities, just like it is in Europe. You mentioned autonomous cars. And here I can tell you in in Toronto, you probably know it already, but I'll reset it for our audience. We don't have um, Ubers or Lyfts or taxis that are driverless right now. We're not we're not in total recall uh, Schwarzenegger mode yet, but there are some grocery delivery trucks. There are a few autonomous vehicles on the road. And obviously you could you could let a a Tesla a Tesla self-pilot. Where are you seeing um, the successes in um, autonomous vehicles? Nobody likes the idea of, of job loss, but the companies sell. And I think it's a valid one is. Look, if we save money on this, we can spend more money on infrastructure, which often means people in these departments. Where are you seeing the successes so far, David? I'm not really seeing successes yet from a societal perspective. I think the uh, global city where you see the most autonomous transportation anywhere is San Francisco, obviously sort of the capital of the Bay Area, where a lot of these uh, tech companies are based. And uh, San Francisco, the city itself, doesn't really have any ability to control AV access. That's really set at the California level. So there's a couple of companies called Waymo and Cruise that have deployed, frankly, an unknown number of vehicles that are autonomous as robo-taxis within that city. There's a couple others too, but Cruise and, and, and Waymo are the big ones. If you as a Torontonian um, would ask me, like, what is the benefit I would have when a robo taxis come? I got to be honest with you. I don't know exactly what I would tell you. I sense it. And I've I lived in Detroit for 10 years. So there, there you have it. The Motor City transit's pretty lousy. If you live in the suburbs, you're driving every day. You just are. I, I hope that could change over the span of a quarter century. But but I'd also make the case like it does feel it's a bit of a culture war, isn't it? The war on the car versus transit. And I go, we all have those moments where we're driving kids to a soccer practice and carpooling and you need a car. And there's other times where you're like, I just want to take the train and go down to a concert downtown or a hockey game. And and I, I want that option. Like I, I it doesn't have to be a we, we need to find that balance. We, we're not going to all sell our cars and we're not all going to just drive our cars um, universally. Like we're trying to find that balance here for our own budget, also for the environment and, and find it together. Yeah, I mean, the way I think about it is that 
that the car, it's not a war on cars. The car isn't going anywhere, but it, we, we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to our children to allow choice yeah. so that you aren't forced to drive, even if you would rather not. There is, are viable, affordable, safe options to, to, to go to travel by train or by transit or to bike. And those options just don't really exist in a lot of North American cities at the moment. I don't know if you say this in Canada, but in, in the United States, we say often that Americans have a love affair with the car. And I push back against it and I say, honestly, it's more of a forced marriage. Yeah. Because in most of this country, outside of New York and Chicago, maybe Boston and DC, you don't have a choice. You're going to have to drive. That's a forced marriage. It's not a love affair. Um, new new e-bike data that you documented on your Twitter account shows that people are saving money. Obviously, um, they're they're certainly improving their carbon footprint. Could you lay out that that many states give you an economic benefit and a tax rebate, and th they're really trying to encourage buying uh, buying an electric bike? Here we're not, but clearly the encouragement's paying off. Yeah, so. With e-bikes, you know, if you haven't tried one, it's hard to understand, but they're not like bikes. <laughs> they're really not. They're not used in the same way. By providing that that battery power, that, that, that extra boost, they really do become car replacers. And as they do, they provide a host of societal benefits in terms of lower emissions, in terms of less danger to other road users, in terms of just efficiency of space usage in, in a dense city like a Toronto. So it's really in, in light of those kinds of benefits, including health benefits, which I mentioned, that uh, a growing number of American cities and states are offering rebates to those who buy an e-bike. David Zippers, our guest, joining us in Toronto today on 640 Toronto. Run out of time, but I want to ask you, one of the things you've documented and I think is a real passion of yours is pointing out um, that some vehicles, and it's a very North American phenomenon, are just too damn big. They're too damn heavy, and they're just they're deadly in accidents that wouldn't necessarily be deadly with smaller or more compact cars. Some of that is obviously, again, I was saying earlier, the time of the life you're in. We're we're in that zone where we got a a seven person SUV, but you you make a call when you're in that sort of zone as a parent, and I can't wait to be an empty nester and have either a two seater or or whatnot. But I, I remember that era in Detroit, David, where it just felt like every one of my friends was buying a, a Ford Expedition or a Cadillac Escalade, these monsters. Like you feel like you're in a pickup truck, not an actual car. Can we, will we be able to slide that needle the other way? Because whether it's the price of gas or insurance or whatever, it just doesn't seem like North Americans want to stop buying these, these big monsters. I'm not sure if it's want to. They're not stopping buying these big monsters. <laughs> There's a strong argument that they, if they had a viable choice, a lot of them would get something else. Um, there is something of, uh, in game theory, there's a concept called, uh, called the prisoner's dilemma, which can lead people to make decisions that they would prefer not to have to make, but they're making those decisions because they assume other people are going to make decisions of their own. And I wonder if that's kind of the situation we're in with these huge SUVs and trucks, where even if you yourself might prefer to have a smaller vehicle, all else being equal, uh, you know that you've got other people around you who are going to drive these behemoths on the highway and you yourself don't want to be at a disadvantage in a crash or you're trying to see over the car in front of you. So you get a bigger car too. 
I think that's a big, a big issue here. And that's where government needs to step in, in my view, and apply like a, a weight-based vehicle fee to sort of incentivize smaller cars. Because keep in mind too, the other, the other factor here is that automakers are making more money from these larger cars. They have very little interest uh, unless they're forced to, to go smaller. And that to me is another reason why it's not necessarily a consumer preference. Just like I was saying earlier, it's a mistake to assume that we all have a love affair with the automobile. We might just be forced into that, into, into driving. Um, I think that a lot of people who uh, are, are now inside a enormous SUV or truck would be very happy to be in a smaller mm -hmm. car if, if there was one that was available and safe. And, uh, and if other people were going to not make them feel threatened because the other people are in those enormous, uh, you know, trucks and SUVs that have space and power that they don't really need. So to me, this is a policy issue. And it's one where I think the Canadian and, and U.S. governments need to get more involved. To follow up on that, how how has Europe avoided, I wouldn't say falling into the trap, but just having that tradition, having that prisoner's dilemma? I've driven in Spain, Portugal, France, like like there's busy highways. There's people who are bricklayers. There's people taking ladders and building equipment. But you just you sure don't see, um, you know, a lawyer or a dentist driving a Ford Expedition, for example, like you just don't. How have they done that? Well, a couple of things. First of all, European cities are really dense and streets are narrow. It's a pain in the butt trying to drive or park a Ford Expedition in uh, in Barcelona if you were to try it. <laughs> um, also, gas is more expensive there. The mm -hmm. taxes are higher, which makes having an enormous vehicle that is a gas guzzler a lot more expensive. Uh, but I will note that um, you know, SU that car bloat. I call the term. I call it car bloat. It's uh, it is a American disease that is spreading. I know it's spread north. I know that Canadians are facing it too, not quite as bad as us. Uh, but it's also spreading to Europe, where SUVs are gaining popularity. And uh, I know that there's some concerns among European colleagues I talked to about how to counteract that. Uh, Norway recently enacted a weight-based uh, vehicle fee schedule. I know, and France has something similar. Uh, these are probably the right approaches, and there are uh, a few like islands in the U.S. that are doing something similar. There's, uh, or in Canada too. There's, uh, but both the District of Columbia and a neighborhood in Montreal have applied weight-based parking fees or vehicle fees, and a recent proposal in New York State would do so across that entire state, including New York City. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, but to me, this we got to do something. Because otherwise, you're going to have just these endlessly huge vehicles that endanger everybody else on the roadway and are also contributing to climate change. Nobody wants that. So we need to do something. If you're headed inside to the theater, look, I'm not expecting this next movie to be Top Gun Maverick in terms of impact. I'm not. Um, we're not we're not going to see a movie that does uh, that well and generates that much. It opened with a one hundred twenty six million dollar weekend um, Memorial Day weekend in May. And obviously we're coming into July 1st, July 4th. But it's thought Top Gun Maverick um, exceeded expectations, certainly in terms of it critical acclaim as well. Some people roll their eyes and are like Tom Cruise is doing this. Really? It's been so long. But it worked. It clicked. I loved it. It I think it brought people back to the theaters. It's the first movie that really connected on all fronts. I have lower expectations for this, but we're going to give it a go. I'm retiring. Well, in that case, what are we drinking? Same for the goddaughter. Dad told me you found something. 
on a train during the war. A dial that could change the course of history. Why are you chasing the thing that drove your father crazy? Don't move. We need to get out of here. Stop! Sorry. Helena! Dr. Jones, get him. Okay, opening day, opening night. I think I'm going to go on Sunday, but I'm hoping this catches fire. It's Harrison Ford back as Indiana Jones for a fifth installment as Indy called Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. It opens tonight and today. Joining us to discuss is Jason Whistle, who's host of the It's Not That Bad Film podcast. Jason, thanks for getting up early for us. I appreciate it. Well, I have my coffee all set to go, so thank you for having me on to the show. Have you seen the movie already, or will you be seeing it this weekend? I'm holding off until the weekend. I, yeah. I'm personally one of those guys who likes to go on Tuesday because, let's be honest, everything costs a lot more these days. But I'm still excited for this. Indiana Jones has always been one of the pinnacles of popcorn pop culture. Like, Regardless what you think of the fourth film, it was still a lot of fun if you ignore the usage of CGI, as opposed to the realistic effects that were used in the first three films. It's hard to top The Last Crusade, but I have a feeling that this one actually has a chance. When you read the background of this, 15 years uh, obviously since they made the the last movie, and then they were tw- like 19 years between Last Crusade, the one with Sean Connery, and, and the 2008 movie, was this a very unlikely movie to have ever gotten made after 2008? I won't say the movie's stiff. People did go still see it, but people thought, well, that tidies it up, but we probably won't see Harrison Ford again play this role. I think the goal of The Crystal Skull was not necessarily to wrap things up. I think it was designed to pass the torch potentially on to Shia LaBeouf. And, of course, that didn't happen because a lot of people, you know, spoke ill of the film. Not the critics. When you look at Rotten Tomatoes, the audience score is actually lower than the critic score. But in what in rewatching the movie, it's actually not that bad. Uh, I know I'm you know, roll credits moment on that one. But when you think about it, Shia LaBeouf is actually pretty good in it. The fact that you have Karen Allen in it, Indiana mm-hmm. Jones has always been not necessarily aside from you know the the tomb raiding and the adventure. It's always been about who surrounds him. You know, you look back to the Temple of Doom and the, the connection between him and Kihi Kwan. Uh, you look back at the Last Crusade. I mean, Harrison Ford and Sean Connery, it, it, it's gold, no matter how you look at it. Even with this one, you've got Karen Allen back, you've got John Reese davies back, and you're surrounding him with, with even more, with Phoebe Waller-Bridge, with Antonio Banderas, with Matt Mickelson. You have a solid cast, and you have James Mangold in the director's mm-hmm. chair. And we saw what he did in, you know, giving Wolverine his swan song until Deadpool 3. But we saw how people reacted to Logan. And if this is going to be Harrison Ford's swan song as Indiana Jones, I couldn't think of a better director to be able to handle that. Uh, the website, by the way, notthatbadcast.com. We're talking to um, somebody about Indiana Jones, obviously, and the D- Dial of Destiny. Jason Whistle joining us on 640 Toronto. Um, I'm old enough to remember. My dad took me to go see Raiders in summer 1981 in the theater, and I, I just wish I could emphasize for younger people what that meant, what that movie's impact was, and and obviously what a massive star Jason Harrison Ford was like pre-internet, pre-everything. It's impossible to explain to people 
when you're Han Solo and Indiana Jones in back-to-back summers, um, you got the world in your in the palm of your hands. I mean, let's also not forget, you know, you, ha- you had him as uh, Decker in Blade Runner around the same time. Yes, that was definitely Harrison Ford's moment. But I think you're getting that resurgence as well. You know, we had Blade Runner 2049. And I think a lot of it's also going to be thanks to the emergence of everything everywhere all at once. We're seeing Harrison Ford and Kihi Kwan meet up on red carpets and meet up at Comic-Cons. And it's evoking a nostalgia for those first three films. Mm -hmm. People are remembering the the joy they had in going to those films. It's it's fun. It's popcorn adventure. And it's the reason why we still have movies like National Treasure, like Tomb Raider. Good, fun, uh, classic serial style adventure films where you go in and you just enjoy the moment. Like I, that's, I think a lot of what people are missing. I think you bring, Jones I, is going to go in there and, and have a ton of fun. Well, you bring up a great thing to, to bring up about movies is that we're just besieged now by like the Marvel franchise and superhero movies. And sometimes I've taken my kids a lot and that it's been great to go, Hey, I want to go see the Batman with you, but the second uh, Doctor Doctor Strange movie, I'll drop you off. Like you, <laughs> you handle that on your own because I I think I'm gonna you know take a nap for an hour and a half. I bring that up to note at this time, the superhero movies weren't really in vogue. We're eight. I'm talking about when Raiders is out and then Temple of Doom's out three years later. We're five years away from Michael Keaton as Batman. We haven't rejigged the Spider Man franchise or anything. So so Indiana Jones is kind of a self created superhero if you will who's just a guy who knows how to use a whip and and has good timing and quippy lines we loved him for that i mean you do have to remember too that we were still in the middle of the christopher reeve superman days back then so you know it's it's not like superheroes weren't on the big screen just not in the way they are today correct i think the the biggest worry that's going to be for this film is not necessarily are people going to like it are people going to connect with it? It's are people patient enough to wait for it to land on Disney Plus? And that's been the biggest bane, I think, for a lot of the Marvel movies lately. It's not the big screen experience. It's not the quality of the film on the screen. It's that people are right now holding on to their dollars because, as I mentioned earlier, things mm-hmm. cost a lot right now. And if they're already paying for Disney Plus and they have to wait for you know a, a couple of months, because let's be honest, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, I think was the shortest time between theater and streaming of any of the Marvel movies. They're going to need to wait and and make people be patient, make people want to say, we need to see this in the theaters before it's really spoiled. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny opens today. We're talking to Jason Whistle about it, host of the It's Not That Bad Film podcast. I bring up um, Harrison Ford's age has been brought up, but I, I mentioned Top Gun Maverick. I'm sitting there in the movie theater just enjoying the time of my life last year, taking my family, going out for dinner ahead of time. And I'm not thinking, Jason, Tom Cruise is 60. Tom Cruise is 60. Because, because again, you suspend your reality a little bit. It's probably unfair um, to point out that Harrison Ford is 80. We won't see him as an 80-year-old in this movie, but that's why we go to the damn movies. We That's why we suspend reality sometimes. Of course, he can't do uh, w- what he's doing at 80, but he can't do some of the things when he was 35 in these franchises either. We're supposed to go and have a good time. I think the fact that Harrison Ford is 80 lends to part of what makes Indiana Jones as a character so complex. Yes, he's courageous. Yes, he's brave. Yes, he has he commits feats of daring do. But he is, you know, 
He's not exactly the, the, the best connecting with, with his friends and with his family. He's afraid of snakes. There, there is a, a vulnerability, a, a frailty to him that's easily relatable. Now we have the guy who's not only afraid of snakes, but he's also getting up there and into this almost you know bucket list type adventure. Mm. It's going to add to this nostalgia of if this is, and it probably should be, the last Harrison Ford Indiana Jones film, is this going to be the passing of the torch, or is this going to be the curtain call for the franchise? And I think that's the moment that people are, are waiting for. Last Crusade could have been it, and we could have been done with it. Yeah. But of course, like, like any good character, you can't really kill that kind of character. I'm glad it's Harrison Ford. I'm glad we still have him you know, able to play that role, because if anyone, steps, anyone else steps into that role, and we saw that with Solo, Someone tried to be Alden Ehrenreich, tried to be Harrison Ford, and it didn't work as well. At least it wasn't received as well. Let Harrison Ford yeah. hang up the fedora and let Phoebe Waller-Bridge continue on with not necessarily the Indiana Jones franchise, but her own spinoff series. I think that could work. I only have 30 seconds. How big a film does this become this summer? I think it definitely makes its money back, considering it has a $300 million budget. I think it's going to do very well worldwide. I don't think it's going to be a billion-dollar film, but I think it matches what Kingdom of the Crystal Skull did. I gotcha. Hey, go visit uh, the website and, and check out the tweets, uh, by the way, at NotThatBadCast, and check out NotThatBadCast.com. Jason Whistle, thanks very much. Love getting your insight here, and, and we'll have to do this again. Um, I'm happy to have you on, and have a great Canada Day weekend, and enjoy the movie. I will do, and you too. Have a great Canada Day weekend, everybody. Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Weekdays at 5.30. We are 640 Toronto.